TED Audio Collective. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now, your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks to communications strategist and designer Cheryl Heller about her career in advertising, about why groups aren't conducive to creativity, and why the creative process is not something that can be designed. I think creativity is based on trust. If you do your homework, if you listen, things will occur to you. You will have an idea. Here's Debbie Millman. Cheryl Heller designs better ways for people to move ideas. She calls it communication design, and she considers it one of the most important challenges to our future. You can tell she thinks it's important because she's at it on all fronts. She founded Heller Communication Design. She's a board chair at PopTech, the Innovation Lab. And this year, she's launched a brand new MFA program at the School of Visual Arts. The program is called Design for Social Innovation. And whether you're from the world of design or engineering or banking or nursing, you can go there and learn how to design change. Cheryl, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you, Debola. <laughs> now, that is the first time I've ever been <laughs> taken completely off guard by my guests. <laughs> and that's sort of what I try to do for my guests. But uh, Cheryl is calling me Debola because we talked about our Jewish roots or our honorary Jewish roots in the studio this afternoon. And uh, Cheryl asked me if I had ever been called Debola, and I revealed that both my best friend does call me that and my grandmother used to. So now I have a question for you, Cheryl. Okay. Is it true that Rick Raffay, executive director of AIGA, has referred to you as a failed extrovert? It is absolutely true. And I have to say, it's one of my favorite nicknames because it's absolutely true. You mean more than Cherylilla? More than Cherylilla. <laughs> uh, more than Cherry Pie, which was a favorite nickname of my aunt's. It's absolutely true. I feel like left to my own devices, I would be sitting in the woods and I would be painting or writing. And yet I have this very public life because it's what I need to do now to accomplish what I want to accomplish. So, so in, a, in a recent article on your website, 
which is called Putting the I Back in Team. You talk about your belief that creativity does not happen in groups. Why do you feel that way? I think that there are phases of it that are examined and expanded and poked and deepened in groups. But I think that real ideas happen to individuals. It's something that happens in a combination of your body and your heart and your brain. And groups are distracting. And there's a great movement right now to groupthink everything. This notion that there has to be a crowd around whenever something happens is really just not true because it eliminates any potential for solitude, for reflection. It's just noise. But it has a place in the process. So there is a, a time and a place when groups actually make something better, but it's not for idea generation usually. So I understand that you're building or you've built a quiet room into your space mm-hmm. for your master's in social innovation. And you've described it as a place for meditation and uninterrupted thought, deep or otherwise. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering why you've done that. There's a place in the Berkshires not far from where my husband and I have a house called Cropalo. And there's a very famous quiet room. And it looks out over the Stockbridge Bowl, which is a really beautiful lake. And I once had some really important writing that I wanted to do. And I went to stay there for a couple of days and sat in the quiet room. And it was the most extraordinary experience of peace. And so that's what it is. It's just, you know, be with yourself, be deep with yourself, think about whatever you want to think about, but share in this creation of a space where other people can be and think. And it'll be offset by a playroom where um, people can hang upside down anytime they want. But it was really important to have that kind of a sacred space where people respect solitude and, um, and let others enjoy it as well. So the last question I want to ask you about this particular topic has to do with your dog and your dog's name, which is Ray. Can you share the story about why you named your dog Ray? Well, the truth is that we love the name Ray. And the truth is that one of my favorite short story writers is Raymond Carver. And he wrote a story called, Will You Please Be Quiet, Please? (laughs) And uh, it's important for a dog to learn that. And so you named your dog Ray after Raymond Carver. Mm -hmm. I love that. So I want to go back to one of the ideas that you talked about before, and that was how we collaborate as well. And one of the things that you've said about collaboration is that our inability to collaborate is one of the main obstacles to social innovation. And and that confused me a little bit because I, I didn't know why that was the case. Or, or why that would happen, yeah. our inability to collaborate. Well, how is that an obstacle to social innovation? It happens at multiple levels. It happens at a structural level because of all the silos we have around different organizations, around different agendas, around competition for business or competition for funding. So there is inherent in our capitalistic society a need to be a self and a separate a separate entity. And that happens in nature as well. Then there is another dynamic, and I'm skipping from the gross to the fine, but there's another dynamic, which is that 
people talk a lot about collaboration, but it actually is an enormous amount of work. And you have to prepare for it, and you have to take the time to make sure that everybody who wants to collaborate has the same vision of a desired end state, and you have to you have to do a lot of prep work before, during, and to see it go forward. Do you think that human beings are wired to be collaborative, or do you think that they're wired to be competitive? Such an interesting discussion. I just had a, a conversation with a journalist who said that because we're descended from chimps and not bonobos, we have the war gene, right? Mary Pearl, who's on our faculty, who is a biologist, said, we are not descended from chimps. It's not so simple. But, you know, there is this this belief, and Judith Thurman wrote this really wonderful article in The New Yorker about the guy who proved that Neanderthals and Homo sapiens interbred. And she basically said, you know, what is it about our species? We have eliminated every other species that was real competition, right? And every time human beings entered another continent, all of the big woolly mammals, all of the charismatic megafauna went away. What is it about our species that we have not learned to really coexist? So I don't know. It's another piece of evidence, but I, I don't know what the answer is. I know that there have been times in my life when it was really important for what I was doing to integrate with another organization. You know, when I went to uh, Humphrey Brennan McDougall to start this design department there, we had to collaborate. And the way it happens is that you decide to collaborate and you go and talk to the people every day that you need to work with. You don't say, gee, I'd like to collaborate and hope that it happens. So the design firm you're talking about is Heller Breen? It became Heller Breen, yeah. So, and you were the CEO of Heller Breen from 1986 to 1990. I was indeed. And that was quite a revolutionary and innovative firm. Now, you went to Wesleyan. What did you do between graduating at Wesleyan and starting Heller Breen? I mostly tried to become a painter, and I went back to the School of the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston for a little while. And in the middle, I had a sort of fell into a job that was an advertising agency, which I didn't even know. <laughs> it was just a job. And I loved working, and I loved the pace of business, and I loved the teamwork. But I went back to school because I thought I wanted to. So it took me a long time to figure out that I wanted to combine whatever creative ability I had with business and that I really did love business. And really shortly after that, I was invited to start this design business at what was the most extraordinary advertising agency, one of the most extraordinary in the country and certainly in Boston. And it really put you on the map very, very early in your career. And, and you've been a superstar ever since. What was it like to go from relative anonymity at the time to suddenly being one of the most coveted and sought after creative directors, if not the country, the world? I always say I was a child star and now I'm a late bloomer. <laughs> <laughs> there were there were years in the middle where I was really sort of finding my way out of the woods. You know, it feels strange and disorienting and right somehow. I mean, what you see when you look back at your life is that there are times when you flow with yourself and you flow with the 
trends and the dynamics that are going on around you. And things come together in ways that are beyond what you could have planned. And there are other times for me when I have been determined to make something happen and I have strived and, you know, I'm pig-headed about work, you know, just beat my head against the wall, insistently trying to accomplish it. And I was just working against all of the energy around me. So I remember turning 29 and knowing that it was going to be a phenomenal year. And I don't know how I knew that or why, but it just felt like there was some some energy with me that things were going to line up so that I could accomplish what I wanted to accomplish. And then I came to New York and screwed everything up. Well, the industry went into a tizzy. I mean, literally, after you left Hellebreen to go become the executive vice president and executive creative director at Wells Rich Green. Why did you do that? Why did you make that change? Well, one smart answer, I was going to say smart-ass. Um, oh, you can say smart-ass One smart-ass answer I give Good. is that life was perfect and I had to stick my finger in the fan. And part of that is true, right? Boston is this wonderful place that was incredible for me. But in Boston, it feels like people want to accomplish a certain amount of things. They want to get to a certain place so they never have to change again, right? And and I was running an agency. I had two horses in Rhode Island. We had a place on Martha's Vineyard. You know, we had the world's most amazing apartment on Commonwealth Avenue. It was like, hey, life is perfect. Let me screw this up. Because I didn't want to know what the rest of my life was going to be like. I didn't want that to be what it was. And I got this job offer to take this big glamorous job with Mary Wells in New York. And I was totally ignorant. I mean, up until then, every decision that I had made was more fun than the last, right? And so you don't know that you're capable of really stupid moves. What was stupid about it? Wells was a very unhappy place. Um, Somebody described a great day at Wells as watching someone else have a worse day. It was not a good moment in the agency's history. Mary had extricated herself and was about to sell it, which we didn't know. But it was also walking into a kind of advertising that is, you know, the stuff of Mad Men later, right? But I walked in and I started the first day and people are walking around. They work for P&G and the Sure account was in review. And people were walking around saying, we're going to own hugs, because they had this campaign about somebody hugging a soldier who came home. It was like bewitched, right? It was like whatever his name was. Like, <laughs> Darren. Am I, yeah, am I unbewitched? Yeah, whatever. Like, is this bewitched? Like, I'm going to own hugs? What does that mean? That's in- <laughs> It's just insane. So in Boston, you know, we had clients that we loved. And we would sit down with the CEO and you'd say, what do we want to do? And they'd say, okay, and you'd go and do it. Got to New York and, you know, your clients are the people that you read about in newspapers all the time and you don't get to sit down with them and they don't like everything you do. And sometimes they take two years to do a campaign and sometimes they research it to death. And at the time, it felt like I had walked away from all the art in my life and all the beauty in my life because it wasn't beautiful. Now I am more grateful for the things I learned there because I never would have learned them anywhere else. And that was the place. That was the the initiation where I learned the science that advertising has mastered, where you distill a message so that a person that you intend to understand it understands it and you move them to change the way they think. And we, as designers, tend to be so dismissive of advertising. And advertising's done, you know, has a lot to do with our, obviously, our consumer society. 
But I think we throw this extraordinary tool out because we don't like what advertising's done. But there's so much to be learned from that process about how you move people. Your life and my life intersected very, very briefly right after you left Wells Rich Green. They actually intersected twice, one of which you know about, one of which you don't. The first time was seeing you on a subway, and I knew it was you because I knew what you looked like, and I'd been following your work, and I thought that, and still do, that you were among the most glamorous women that I had encountered. And then I met you when you came to be the executive creative director at Frankfurt Ballkind. I was then a marketing director and, interestingly, experiencing probably a lot of what you were experiencing at Wells Rich Green in my life at that time, some of which had to do with where I worked, some of which didn't. I was 29 or 30 at that time and feeling very opposite to what you were feeling at 29, which was, I don't know where my life is going. I don't know what is possible. And I'm afraid any decision I make is going to be my last. Um, In any case, you came into Frankfurt Balkine to really become a a strategic change agent. And, And it's interesting because that's very much how you were described. And I find it so interesting that that's really what you are. You come into places, you come into organizations, and you create a new way of thinking. You create a new way of seeing the world. And and you're very much a leader in taking people to places that they didn't necessarily know they needed to go, but then suddenly realize they have to be. How do you do that? Well, first of all, that's extremely kind, so thank you. I think... It has had something to do with two dynamics. And one is never being quite in a place doing what you prepared to do. So I was a fine artist. I had a portfolio of drawings and etchings. And I, you know, got a job in this advertising agency. And from the beginning, it was, well, you don't have the right stuff. We're going to hire you because you're wearing a really short skirt, which is, in fact, what it was. (laughs) Hardly. No, no. No. (laughs) <laughs> it turned out not to be, but okay. but trust me, I wore very short skirts then, and I was happy to have a job. I had no money. And, and that sort of continued, that uh, I was a fine artist then in a design studio. Then I became a designer in an advertising agency. Then I became an advertising person in a design agency. And it kept going back and forth. And what happens is you're never – you're always a little bit on the outside. You're always forced to be a little bit objective. You're always forced to explain – what it is you do in order to become a part of what's going on, you have to do the work of connecting it to people because they they won't do it on their own. They can't do it on their own. And the cumulative effect of that has been that I've always sort of been in a position to see the differences between things, the connections between things. And I think it's just given me a perspective on all of this that has allowed me to observe it in a different way. And to a certain extent, to take some of the silliness out of it, right? I mean, you've worked around, right? You're an art director. You're not a writer. You can't write on this. Please don't write. That's my job. You know, you're a creative person. I'm the strategic person. I really don't want your opinion on the strategy. And 
you see these players, right? You see how silly it is. Who invented that, right? Yeah, that's a that's absolutely. a it's a contrived distinction. That's true of these distinctions between advertising and design. And you remember, it used to be a very big deal. You were an advertising person, or you were a designer. You can't be strategic, or you can't do this. So you just see those things from a position of observation rather than immersion. And after a while, you accumulate a different perspective. So that was one thing. And then the other thing is I just think that I always was trying to get to the most upstream part of the challenge, right? I resented that I would get an assignment, a design assignment, and somebody would say, we need a brochure. We need an end report. We need a website. And I would say, well, how do you know that? You know, we haven't figured that out. And then at Wells, it was, we need a 30-second TV campaign. Well, why? How do you know that? I mean, Ford was my client, and Edsel Ford was my client, and I loved him. And I wanted to have this conversation with him about what Ford ought to do. But we were hired to do 30-second spots, and you couldn't even have the conversation. And so I wanted to get to the point where you were starting from no answer and really being able to make it all up. And that was sort of a quest. So I read recently that you wrote an article that you wanted to ban the word brand, that you feel about the word branding the same way you feel about leather pants. There's nothing inherently (laughs) wrong with them. It's just that too many of the wrong people wear them. It's the same for you with the word brand ruined because too many of the wrong people use it and for the wrong reasons. Now we're sitting in a branding studio. I'm fine, yeah. Defend myself, How are you feeling about that, Cheryl? (laughs) I feel fine about it. And the reason is I think I know I can have the conversation with you. I think the concept of brand has become like a billboard between people and products and the experience. And I also think that it's become a victim of the industrial age. So most of what I'm inspired by now has to do with nature and living systems and the way that they operate. And the notion of identity as opposed to brand – And you will say that this is what brand means to you. And I think that I completely respect that. But I don't think that's true everywhere. I think that brand is used in many cases as a place that you accrue reputation and a place that you accrue goodwill, you know, so that that it gets you over the bad parts of disappointing people. And I think that the notion of an identity is a living thing, and it's more about the future and the capacity that you have to do things than it is about whatever you've done or spent or built up in the past. So when you talk about banning the word brand, are you talking more about banning the way in which people use brand as a substitution for another meaningful experience? Or are you looking to ban the word brand because of the inherent wrongness in the way that brands are capitalist tools? I think the former, but I have to think again about your second question. You know, I've seen, as you have, the inside of a lot of big businesses. Yes. And in many of them, the brand has this sacred position that doesn't necessarily connect to their behavior. Right? Uh, yeah, I actually think that in many in many ways the brand doesn't have a sacred position that the brand is being carried forth as a 
almost camouflage for what is really going on. And there is this brand that's been created that's sort of owned by the consumer now or owned by their audience or owned by people and that they have the ability to manipulate that to get what they want. So it no longer becomes this outside entity that people experience, but it becomes almost a weapon. Yeah, I think you and I are saying the same thing. When I say sacred, it's it's sort of that's what matters, right? As long as the illusion is there, then you do whatever you have to do to sort of keep that polished. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Why do you think people love brands so much now? I mean, brand is definitely an overused word, both corporately as well as, I think, in our culture. I just wrote a book where, and I asked 22 of the world's greatest thinkers on brand, how they would define brand, and I got 22 definitions, interestingly. But I also love brands deeply, deeply, and I've spent my life thinking about brands and working on brands. Why do you think that brand is such a big word right now? I think it isn't only brand, and, and my my feelings extend to the word innovation. Now yes. it's the word accelerator. It's social innovation. It's impact. It's I think our culture has a love of sound bites has a laziness in communication and basically takes concepts that have nuance and meaning and beats them to death by overuse. Yes. So I think brand falls in that. But I, I have great concern. This is whole concept of social innovation is going to become such a buzzword that it becomes meaningless. They become invisible because they're used so often and by – not by the wrong people, but by people who don't stand behind what they mean and use them out of convenience. And you also don't like the term design thinking. You wrote an article on your blog called Design Stinking. It's true. <laughs> Tell me about that. It's, in that case, it's not the term design thinking. It's the process. And I, I have said that it's designed for MBAs, right? There is – an insecurity in designers. Yes. And inherent to being a designer, I think. Yes. And I don't accept that it has to be there. There's an insecurity about being able to talk to business leaders. There's an insecurity about the integrated role that they have. And I wish we could feel really confident and proud about the creative process. Creativity is something I think that it's hard to talk about in a business meeting, right? It's hard to go in with all the research people and the yeah, MBAs. And, yeah. and it's subjective. Right. And so I think that's a little bit of the insecurity. And to me, design thinking is a process that, you know, it's like creativity for idiots. <laughs> oh, don't repeat that. Nobody heard that, right? <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Here's the formula, right? When There is no formula. There is no formula. There are conditions for success. And so exactly what we talked about with branding or social innovation, design thinking has become the answer to everything, and it's not, right? What do you think those conditions for success are, though, that you just referred to? I think we started way in the beginning with one of them, right? It is a combination and a rhythm of solitude and contemplation and immersion in a context and understanding the audience and understanding the group of people that you're trying to move and that you're collaborating with. So that's part of it. So there have been funny people in various places. One of them, I can't remember his name, he wrote this Harvard Business Review uh, article, and he 
claimed to have invented the creative process. He had this class, and what he discovered was uh, he would force them to read all kinds of stuff, and they'd, you know, pack their heads till they couldn't think anymore. Then they'd go play tennis or take a run, and then they'd come back, and things would occur to them, right? Those are the conditions for success. And anybody who has had a job being creative knows you come to know that. You completely absorb everything there is to understand about the problem, you go for a run, you sleep on it, you stop trying to think about it, your subconscious takes over and things occur to you. And so when you need to rely on that process, you understand those conditions for success. The conditions for success in larger groups are trying to replicate that, getting the same level of comfort, getting the same level of play, getting people to all sort of have the same picture of what the facts are. And they somehow still expect that that is going to produce profundity. Well, yes, they do. (laughs) I was thinking there's a long answer, but yes, they do. Because people want the form of it and not the depth, right? Well, I think that when you're studying accounting or when you're studying economics or when you're studying any type of math-based practice, there are rules. Mm -hmm. Science, there are rules. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's just a theory. It's Mm -hmm. not a law. So I think that it's natural that people that aren't creative are going to try and codify the creative process because that is the way in which they think. The problem with that notion is that the way creative people think is entirely subjective and the way that they approach, the way that creative people approach problems is a bit messier, which most business people find a little bit vulnerable-making, if that's a term. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And, and I would say that whereas there is a kind of personality and a kind of job that likes rules, what they do is based on rules. I think creativity is based on trust, right? Trust that something will happen if you do your homework, if you observe, if you listen, things will occur to you. You will have an idea. But and Cheryl, it, I think that that presumes a certain level of intelligence as well. I don't think that anybody that is briefed on something and thinks about it and gets whatever information they can, can have necessarily the same result as somebody that is also bringing a certain level of intelligence and rigor to the Oh, problem. absolutely. Yeah, no, I'm not saying anybody can design, but I'm saying that, that the creative process lives with a certain amount of trust rather than rules, right? Trust yeah. in the process, yeah. trust in the wellspring of creativity. One of the things that you mentioned before was having a series of connections or or finding a series of connections. And I'm wondering, do you find that that is inherent in the creative process? Do you think that's inherent in designers, the ability to do that? Or do you think it's a learned skill? I think it's an ability that becomes like a muscle used and available, right? I think in the beginning... You have these abilities, but you can't always call on them exactly when you want. And I think as you use them and they become familiar, they're yours to call on. But yes, I think it is something that designers inherently have. And some scientists, you know, I think that line is really blurred. You recently, in addition to having your really extraordinary design practice, you've recently created a new MFA program at the School of Visual Arts. It is called the MFA in Design for Social Innovation. And it is 
going to be preparing students to apply the principles and ethics of social innovation as filters for understanding and as a discipline for engaging with and improving the world through design. So how did you start this MFA program, having also created or co-founded a, a master's program at SVA? I know how intensely difficult that is to not only come up with the idea and to make the idea happen, but also have the Board of Education approve it. So talk a little bit about, about your process in putting this program together. Well, my great advantage was that I had no idea how hard it was going to be. So Yeah, they don't tell us at the beginning. <laughs> that helps. It was about six years ago now. I joined the board of the Art Directors Club in New York, and there was this guy sitting there named Richard Wilde, and I didn't know him. But if anybody knows him, what he does after the first conversation is talk you into teaching. And so he started trying to talk me into teaching, and I really said, not going to happen with me. I'm running a business. I got yada, 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 yeah, all those things. Words. Yeah, exactly. And he said at one point, I want you to think of what would really feed you and do that. And we'll make the class around. And he said, if you want students to come to your studio, that's great, too. And I started thinking about what I felt I was most happy to have learned. And now it gets back to that, those years in advertising. What I have seen with so many designers and so much design education is that designers learn the tools and the skills, but it mostly becomes a kind of self-expression. Right. Whereas in advertising, you are taught to focus on your audience and to put yourself in their shoes and to immerse yourself in what they're thinking. Design is about your personal taste, your style, what's your favorite, you know. Your personal connections. Your personal connections. And so the class is called Design for Good. And it really is about helping designers go through this experience of not only mastering the tools and the skills, but being in control of what somebody gets from it. And we talk about the gap between what you intend to say and what gets heard a lot. So this class took probably three years to really sort of form itself. But then it got to be really exciting. And from the beginning, we have taken on clients and, and really looked at some pretty big issues from Katie Payne and her Elephant Listening Lab to now we're working with an organization in India that, that sells products that disabled people make. So some really wonderful things. And then about three years ago, Richard said, what if we develop this into a master's program? We're conditioned, right? Somebody says, do you want to do something? We say, yes, of course. Yeah, that sounds like fun. I'll try that. And so I did. Like, what a cool thing. I never, you know, thought about doing a master's program. But then as we really started to iron it out, with David. You're talking about David Rhodes, the president of the School of Visual Arts. That very David Rhodes, yes. We have these discussions about what is it? What is the path? What's the education? What's the curriculum? What's the point? What distinguishes it from some other program that somebody can take? That was about a year. And that was really much more rigorous. Because in the beginning, you know, this issue of sustainability was sort of part of it. And we all know sustainability isn't a separate practice. Sustainability is a way of doing whatever you do. It's a way of living. It's a way of living. And I know there are a lot of programs out there on sustainability, but it didn't seem that it was going to hold as a really specific and unique program that we could maintain. So this idea of design for social innovation came about 
you mentioned that there are other paths for learning about innovation, but I think with social innovation, and maybe we can talk a little bit about what the difference is between innovation and social innovation, because we're hearing the word social innovation a lot more now. I think it's a really dynamic word that seems to have caught the zeitgeist, but there really isn't a learning path for it as far as I can tell. And this is really innovative in that regard. So what are the fundamental differences between studying innovation and studying social innovation? In a simple word, context, right? Okay. Because social innovation, and I learned a lot about this from Paul Pollock, who, if anybody hasn't heard of him or read his book, I advise it. He's written a book called Out of Poverty. He He's uh, had a profound influence on you. He's had a profound influence on many, many people. He's in his 70s now. He would not want me to tell his age. He started out as a psychiatrist and did some research. He asked doctors what their definition of health was, and they said absence of symptoms. And he asked patients what their definition of health was, and they would say things like, when my stepfather stops coming in the middle of the night and beating me, or when I have a place to live, or when I have enough to eat. And he found that it was always context-based. So to make a long story short, the organization that he started, IDE, was based on talking to 3,000 poor people. And he asked them why they're poor. And he says they always know. And so social innovation is the design of new models and ideas that will improve society and the environment. And you cannot do that unless you know completely and fully that what you're doing will actually be relevant and beneficial to the people for whom you're doing it. And so that's a big difference. And how have you approached the curriculum? Can you talk a little bit about the classes and the faculty? Sure. I mentioned Mary Pearl, who's an extraordinary conservation biologist and pioneered this study of environmental health, you know, the impact that ecology has on human health. Asi Barak is a game designer. Um, Jane Engelbart is an MBA. And, you know, I say she is the most important person in the world to know when you have an idea and you don't know how to get it out in the world. She's been a funder. She's given grants. She's run big foundations. She consults with CEOs. Danny Alexander is a product designer who will say that his life is in the toilet because he's focused on sanitation systems around the world. Mark Reddig is an ethnographic researcher who has become a living systems guru. Lee Shan Hong and Alex, Alessandra Orofino are social movement designers. They come from a company called Purpose. And what I love is we've all become very close in this quest to make all of our perspectives make sense, right? Not to make it siloed, but to come together and create this workable structure for people to understand. So that's one part of the diversity. In terms of what their the, the courses, we are looking at two broad courses, one on an introduction to social innovation, which will be what is this thing? What are the issues? What are the connections between the issues? You know, how does poverty connect to conservation, connect to government, all this stuff? There's another sort of comprehensive course on systems that will look at natural systems and social systems and business systems. So we're going to put all that together. And then there are 
more specific courses on game design. Alexis Lloyd, who's this extraordinary visualization designer from the New York Times Research Lab, has just joined. She'll be teaching visualization design. Despina Papadopoulos, um, who also teaches at ITP and is a technologist, will be teaching about systems and models. So, and and from the beginning, students will be working on real things. So, Asi says it beautifully. He went to CMU, and while he was in graduate school, he designed this game called Peacemaker, which is intended for the Palestinians and the Israelis to play so that they understand each other's issues. I would say they haven't clearly played it enough, but 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 that happened while he was in school, and he, you know, he said, and and it's a principle of the program. We don't want people to feel like this is two years out of their life. We want them to come and start their life. So we have these extraordinary people with all of their networks who are going to be focused on helping people um, find the the knowledge and the connection, the networks they need to do whatever they want. And one other faculty member who's important, her name is Julie Manga, and she is a coach to CEOs. Julie's very much focused on internal sustainability, right? How are your resources and are you connected with what you feel is your real purpose? Because we don't think anybody can have a life helping other people if you're not being fulfilled. So that's going to be part of it as well, you know, that people will be coached personally to think about what is sacred and important to them. Cheryl, this sounds absolutely extraordinary. And I wish you all the best with this new program. It's starting, your first class is starting in the fall Mm -hmm. of 2012. And I believe you can still apply, right? Applications are still open, yes. Well, thank you for working so hard to make the world a much better place for all of us. And thank you, Debola, for this platform, for this incredible Design Matters program. Thank you. And for your master's program. To learn more about Cheryl Heller, you can go to hellercd.com to see all about her design practice and to visit the Design for Social Innovation MFA program. Just go to dsi.sva.edu. Thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica and research by Jen Simon. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes Store. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.